And welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and today I'm delighted to welcome Sammy Jensaw, a tribal member of the Yurok, who is also the director of his own organization, the Ancestral Guard, as well as a subject of two documentaries, both Gather from 2020 and Guardians of the River in 2021, both of which discuss indigenous foodways as well as his activism on the climate. River Basin in Northern California. Additionally, two weeks ago, we had Che Glowry on this show, who was telling us that he taught Sammy how to fish. Let's see if that's really true. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on and for all of your work that you've been doing, which I've been sort of slowly learning about since you sent me on the path of looking up that documentary, Guardians of the River. Yeah, nice. I'm glad you got to check that out. Yeah, I'm just thankful for this opportunity to be here. And, you know, that's it always comes back to uh, looping everything back into the people. And that's where we found success. And it makes me happy. I find it kind of incredible that There are so many different ways that you've been advocating for the Yurok tribe and the Northern California Klamath Water Basin. And oh, before I forget, though, I just had Shay Lowry on earlier this week, and he told me to tell you he's the one who taught you how to fish. Oh, shoot. (laughs) (laughs) I heard it all. (laughs) Is there a story there? (laughs) No, No, one time I had to check his net. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, he's a really, Chegg does really awesome work. As you already know, you had a conversation with him. The story about Chegg is when um, they were doing their, their, their stories for the veterans and they're going around talking to veterans. And I was at my friend, he's at Walkie Pass now, but he's a drum maker and a mentor. And when the crew came in, he's like, yeah, I got these people here. They're doing a little documentary. I said, that's cool. He's like, you want to see something? I said, yeah. And he turned around those guys and they said, you want to hear a story about the war? They said, yep. And he told her, well, give me a minute. I'll make up a good one for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was just a little trick that he did. So I don't know. Chegg's really awesome. I really like the work he's doing. Yeah, he's pretty great. He and Weshoyo Alvitre were on, on Monday talking about a new book that they have about California basket weaving called My Sisters. If you haven't seen it, it's amazing. I'm sure if you contact him, he'll send you a copy. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. And the work that that Chegg is doing with Soldiers Unknown and all of these other things, because I'm also a comic book reviewer, and I just am in such admiration of what he does, too. So I kind of wanted to ask you, though, since we already kind of jumped into this, In terms of your work with documentaries now and the work that you've seen with the documentaries Chegg was involved in, have you found that documentaries are making a noticeable change in attitudes and leading to political action? Well, I don't think, one, the documentary, that's that's a good question because I don't think it's so much the documentaries as much as it is the people that are making the change happen. Mm -hmm. And documentaries, there are some type of documentaries where they'll go in and they have an agenda, and they already have a story, and, try, and they'll try to, try to create um, like actors. And I feel like there's a lot of that going on early in this um, genre because you know, documentaries are actually you know they're quite new if you think about it in the history of film context. So I think the the genre of documentaries is changing to where it's not just uh, 
certain type of people who have the ability to share stories, but more and more people are having access to the technology and the infrastructure that allows them to share this story with people. And so we're seeing a lot more people who are deeply woven into their communities, into their cause, into their places, instead of what's um, profitable. And do you feel like films like Gather or Guardians of the River, for example, when they're shown, do you feel the impact at all within your community? Yes. Yes, I do. And I've always had a love for films myself growing up. And I've never, I've always wanted to be involved in it. I never thought that I would be in documentaries or anything like that. But having the opportunity to to know so much about film and to know how much it has the ability to impact something, it was something that we strategically planned through. So, with gather as you can see one of the main differences between gather is my hair so i grew <laughs> over times you know and so something i did per- at first it was because i couldn't get a haircut but then i noticed like how much you have to truly love yourself to like grow your hair out from a haircut and to start growing your hair out so it's like you truly have to love yourself enough to make it through what people call the ugly stage i call it the finding yourself stage you know, with your hair. Now, luckily for me, I got these luscious locks. But You do, yeah. you do. You have beautiful hair. My husband has that similarly beautiful curly lock look. <laughs> yeah, good man. So, you know, and that's something that I figured out during, during these documentaries is that, yeah, we, I invest a lot of my life into working for the people and making sure that op- healthy opportunities are available. And documentaries, uh, uh, working with the right people, first with Sanjay and Gather, which was just, you know, it was an amazing opportunity to get to work with Renan and everybody. Even uh, the sound team was phenomenal. The, like, a lot of people don't know, we had a sound guy that also worked works with Shark Week. So it was a real deal. But yeah, it was a little inside for you. Really amazing group of people. And when you find teams like that, that those are the people that you want to work with. And it's not even work because they're letting you do your thing naturally. And they're not trying to push it. Same thing with the Guardians of the River. You know, Shane is an awesome director and he kind of opened it up and allowed us to be ourselves and not push us into a box or try to have an agenda but really just follow us around respectfully with the camera and allow us to do our thing and it worked out really well i feel i feel it's a really nice piece and i'm happy that it's it's also part of our history i feel because my grandfather he did a he did a documentary one time called cry of the euro and you know we always have videotapes floating around the house and stuff like that but just to just to know that, you know, I need to get really get to spend a lot of time with my grandfather in a mature age. So to see these documentaries and understand what they're thinking about, it really gives me some insight. So I hope that future generations will have the same kind of experience. And that's what I look at. I don't really look at when I make movies uh, to try to make movies for people right now. I'm trying to think about what kind of messages do I want to pass on to people in the future. If you think about it that way, a lot of the messaging that you have is so eloquent and so it's hard to to really pinpoint exactly what it is about your voice on film that is so stirring but i think maybe it is because you have this image of the future and that you're really trying to represent the ways of life right now for posterity that it comes through so well yeah it comes from failure (laughs) (laughs) you know because i've spent a large portion of my life trying to explain to people why it's so important to have healthy access to opportunities and them not understanding, or it's not something that was usually happening. And uh, I got told of no a lot, especially being a 17 year old 
leading a youth group with a bunch of 12 and 11 year olds rolling up into people's offices and being like, you need to change what you're doing right now. And we're here to tell you that it's like a lot of people when you're young, they don't, you don't get the same opportunities. And when I, especially when I was younger in the early two thousands, I feel like there wasn't a lot of youth leadership opportunities in our area. It wasn't um, expected of youth. As of today, we are expected to see youth leaders in our community. It's something that's been you know, normalized. So mm-hmm. I feel really great about having an opportunity to kind of break that mold and sit in the council chambers at the age of 14, 15 years old and have decisions on policies that are going to be shaping the future. Having those type of opportunities and having people the right people invest time and energy into you is so important. And with these documentaries, I feel like it's given the opportunity to link up with the right people and in like in ways that we never could before. Using this technology as a tool is is very important to me. And it shines through. And I think it's wonderful what you're doing in this space, but I I kind of want to know your history in terms of what you're doing in terms of the Klamath Water Basin, how did you first become aware of the problems that were happening there? Since a lot of your activism is centered around the dam right now and the way that the dam has been stagnating water flow and creating all kinds of problems for the natural habitats there and therefore also for the food systems. Do you remember like at what age you first were aware that there was something wrong with the water? Mm. My earliest memory would have to be around 2001, 2002, when I completely understood something was wrong. And that was when the fish kill happened. I remember right before the fish kill happened, fish were in the water and the water was so warm and nobody knew a fish kill was going to happen. But right off our fishing dock, I would see salmon come right up to the top of the water and just like gasp for air and like, you know, moving so slowly and stuff like that. Huge salmon. And I remember seeing that and there's so much salmon that I literally would jump off the dock and into the water and try to grab them. And we'd be like grabbing, trying to grab at fish when we're little kids. And we didn't understand what was going on, but it was because of lack of oxygen and the fish were trying to get oxygen anywhere they could. And we didn't understand the science behind it. We didn't understand what's happening. But when the fish kill happened and you see like your grandma, my grandma, she spent a large part of her life doing way more than I could ever do for indigenous people. And to see her cry, a woman that strong cry uh, at the bank of river and to hear them cry, you know, it's like, it's different. It hits different. And that's something that's, that stuck with me. And I knew something was wrong. And then on top of that, it's like, there's a difference between somebody you can be indigenous and you can have no connection to where mm-hmm. you're from or possibility. Mm-hmm. You don't have to know your culture. You don't have to know your language to be indigenous. But luckily for me, I, I did have the opportunity to learn my language. I did have the opportunity to learn my culture and grow up in the same place that my grandfather's from and his grandfather since the beginning of time. Seeing the problems of the river, it's not, it's not more of like, when did I notice, but when was I able to do something about it? Because we've always known there's something like this. Ever since those are some of the first stories you hear is how healthy the river used to be. And, you know, our grandparents paint this beautiful picture of a past that is no longer existent in this world. And we're able to use that story to set a standard for our living conditions today. And even though we have not come anywhere close to that standard, it constantly gives me a target to take aim at. So that's when I first started realizing the issues of the river 
when I start was when I was able to still comprehend what my grandparents are doing. Oh, sorry. Who, who do you have there? 100 pound puppy named Zeus, my brother's dog. Ah, uh, that's adorable. <laughs> yeah, he's Kalua <laughs> Hound. Looks like a big old leopard seal. Oh my goodness. Yeah. To answer your question, I guess it's a long way around, but yeah, you grow up when you're indigenous, you, you, you depend on these things, you know, these values you carry with you, they exist because you have the ability to provide for your family. And without that ability, it really hinders, you know, our way of life. So we have to do something. We have, you know, we had to do something and we continue to have to do something because even with dams coming out now, there's so much more we have to do. There are just so many interesting things, though, that you had to say that really resonate for me as a member of the disability community when you talk about your activism and being from an indigenous community. How can you protest when your very existence is threatened because you're not able to take in the foods that will help you survive and thrive. I'm a disability activist, and so I spend a lot of time kind of thinking about how the way that government is structured, it's deliberately keeping those of us who are endangered in some sense out of those places of power. And a lot of that really resonated with me. I wondered if you could expand on that idea a little bit for our listeners. The idea that there's so much going on that you would like to be a part of protesting, given that this land was taken from indigenous people to begin with. And then now to take any kind of power back, any small amount of power back requires so much more because so much has been taken. I'm sorry, I'm not expressing this very well, but do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, I kind of understand. And for me, it wasn't it's never been about protesting for me or, or activism. I realized when I was younger, that's what a lot of people wanted. That's what a lot of people needed. And I never wanted to be an activist. I never wanted to be, you know, involved into the struggle. Nobody does. Nobody wants struggle. But I always tell people I was born in the struggle and raised in the resistance because there's always people there who will want to. I mean, it's the problem that we have with America. There's disabled people, Yes. Yes, disabled people, people of color, they say, you know, we're marginalized, we're separated. But how many people of color are also disabled? You know, how many disabled yeah. people are, you know, all these things, everybody. So if you think about uh, the people who are being affected, it's largely, it, it's largely people of color are being affected by these policies. And, and to, to recognize that, it's, it's, it's systematic change that needs to happen within the United States, which I'm glad that we have the new administration coming in with Biden and Harris, but we still have to remind people that, you know, it's all connected into politics and power plays because even with, yes, we have some that's a little bit better than Trump, but we still have to hold these people accountable. We still have to, you know, retain that authority that we, the people have power. And the moment that we lose that, the moment that we, you know, stop hunting, the moment we stop fishing or the moment that we stop, demanding that disabled ramps get put in that's when we lose our power so if we get all these people or you know just want they want to put so much power into government and hold the government accountable no i don't i think what it is is we have to fight for the right to live a healthy existence no matter what that looks like and it doesn't have to be you know at a state level it doesn't have to be national level it could be ready at your home in your own backyard just making sure that the quality of life for the people 
that are um, living near us and proving that in any way we can, it's going to make your life better. Mm-hmm. And I don't like to put all that on people's shoulders, you know, because especially to put on my shoulders from a young age. And another thing I've, I'm lucky enough as how to deal with that because it can be very stressful when you have, you know, when you're young and you have all these people coming to you to answer questions. And as I got older, I realized that taking responsibility and understanding that you can only do what you're physically able to do and remind yourself that and set those boundaries so you can have the energy to also live a good life and spend it with the people you love because that's what it's all about. And a lot of people don't realize how good they have it when they have families or, you know, when they have the ability to be bored because mm-hmm. some people have that, that luxury to be bored because you're constantly fighting and struggling. Yeah. When it comes down to it, activism is really good. I like, to, I like people when people get active, but I don't think that it's, we can't just be crying on to the government hundred percent of the time. We have to take action ourselves. I think that's an excellent point. And additionally, I love that you brought up the idea of the intersectionality, because that's something that I think gets lost a lot of the time is forgetting that people who are indigenous, who are also disabled, are unfortunately invisible from the disability movement, for example. A lot of times people of color are just sort of missing in the headlines somehow. And it really upsets me that all of these things are sort of put into boxes of this is this and there is no crossover so that this vulnerable population can only be this one thing. I just wondered after reading Che Lowry's work, how do you find things are going in terms of the lives of veterans that you know who are disabled, for example? Well, when it comes down to it, when we talk about when you say a veteran, when I think about veterans, you know, I I come from service family. My grandfather was in the army. His brother died in the army. Uh, To hear their stories about it and, you know, to grow up in a community where literally people are fighting for their life, literally people are fighting for their health, and to see in other countries where indigenous people are literally put in war zones, basically, for wanting to live a good life, these people need acknowledgement. We need to honor these people who are fighting for our communities because there's really not a system that, mm-hmm. that exists like that. Because, for instance, I have a buddy, Jack Scott. He's a mentor of mine. And even my other uh, mentor, Marvin, these guys have put so much of their life into fighting for you know, indigenous rights. And there's no recognition for them. When they're in the street, people don't know their story. People, we don't talk about it enough because everybody has so much going on in our lives. And especially in this time, history is kind of generally tossed out the window when so many people are worried about dying today. Just honoring the people who has not just like, don't just look at them as veterans, but look at them as people who are dedicated to or, you know, because I, I think like people develop a tolerance to the word veteran. And it's, I, I'm sad, I'm, you know, I don't like to say that. They think veterans, oh, you just say thank you for your time and that's it. Well, no, we got to, you know, tell that story about who these people are and be open and discuss how can we utilize these skills that they've learned from some of the greatest training minds in our nation? How can we utilize that on the home front instead of letting people go stir crazy and not offering the proper services to these people? So there's so much going on in the world right now. So many people are affected by it differently. Veterans, disabled people, you know, people of color, even people of color, even we're all getting broken down into into separate groups and acknowledged as the minority. Well, 
if you look at it, if you take a step back and you jump out of the box and look into it, you'll see that we are not the minority. We are the majority. No. When it comes to building up this country, Indigenous people are the majority of the people who built this country. And Indigenous people are the majority of people who are keeping this country alive. And if you look around, when I say Indigenous people, even that, people have separated Indigenous people from being just Indigenous to America. When if you think about it, what does Indigenous mean? What does that mean to somebody? It's the mentality, it's the mindset, it's the way you carry yourself. It's just like anything else in this world. Um, like you can be Yurok, you can be Paolo, you can be this, and you can be that. And you can come from a certain place and nobody can do that. Nobody can change that. But the way you see the world, your perspective can be Americanized, can be colonized with such ease to the point where you don't even see the world and a Yurok point of view. You see the world as a person of color instead. And having that discrepancy in our historical database of oral traditions, you know, having that cutoff point, it's only going to cause further disruption in the future. So colonization is the ultimate oppressive act that's being taken upon our people, and it's happening today. People think colonization just happened. No, it doesn't happen. We've become accustomed to it, and we've become a part of the process. Even like right now, I'm wearing this. This is from Malaysia right here, and the indigenous people in Malaysia. I wear that, and I got one on my neck too, and that's because um, the Malaysian people, these indigenous people, you know, they – they're my family. And when I develop programming, I think when I develop this programming, if I get it all written out, and if I were to die today, could somebody else pick it up and use it to help indigenous communities? And if the answer is yes, I'm completely invested. Trying to maintain those dual identities of being specifically a Yurok tribal leader, while at the same time, maintaining your connection to the worldwide indigenous community must be kind of a tension. There's no, there's no duel. There's no duel. You know, there's, there's no life like that. You know, there's a, there's the idea of walking in two worlds that people often use. And I think it's overused. I think it's passed down from a generation where it wasn't all right to be indigenous, where it wasn't okay to be, you know, who you are because you had to prove yourself by process of colonization. You know what I mean? And they wanted people felt comfortable with you in the room. If you distinguish yourself between being indigenous at home, but you can do all that indigenous stuff for you at home. But when you're in the workplace, you know, you're living in this world. Mm. And I don't think that's healthy. So I try not to use no, that. Not at all. Bring that to people to um, kind of explore that for themselves. But there's no two worlds. It's like you're living a life and you want to live a good life. You want to live your best life. Yeah. And it's kind of cliche to say that, but it's so true. Mm. And um, I put a lot of my time and sacrifice, I sacrificed a lot of my time in order so my brothers and so these people, so everybody else could have the opportunity. They didn't have to go through the same things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, actually, what I was talking about when I was talking about the two worlds was more maintaining your Yurok heritage while at the same time also being part of the larger indigenous community within the world and really thinking of all of the different tribes that you have worked with, I mean, as was clear in Gather, and thinking of all of them as your brothers and your sisters. And is there a point at which you have to engage in a certain amount of, well, I need to preserve my Yurok heritage. I need to preserve my ancestral ways. 
Do you think that ever comes at a cost to sort of the global indigenous community? Or do you think everything lifts up the indigenous community when you do that? No, I think personally, what I believe is, as a Yurok man, I focus on values of world renewal in my life. And when you talk about culture, there's a difference between culture and traditions. The culture, what your people, you know, who you are on a daily basis, your culture changes from day to day. It's a, it's a living. It's like it's something you can't grasp and, you know, obtain. You can study it, but you can't control it. Traditions are something that your people have done and always done, and you continue to do it because of that reason. So the traditions and the cultures, these are often muddled together as one thing. And that's where I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. And if you can appreciate somebody's culture without stealing their traditions, you can appreciate somebody's way of life without taking their traditions or taking from them and using it in your own and developing your own traditions from somebody else's culture. I believe that is a greatest weakness of the pan-Indian belief is that it's okay to just take somebody else's culture because they're indigenous or they look like you and run with it. And I believe it's caused a huge obstacle in bringing back indigenous knowledge because if you're learning somebody else's songs and you're dedicating so much of your time into somebody else's culture and meanwhile, you know, your elders are dying, all these traditions mm-hmm. are passing away and you're saying it's helping, you know, people, they say it, it helps people heal like powwow culture, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. everywhere. And so I believe that it's, it's just a way of colonization to slowly allow all these local knowledge to die out while we're getting into this commercialized process of dancing for money. Yes, yes. Full disclosure, like my parents took me to powwows when I was a kid and I lived in Colorado and I always had this sense that it wasn't real and that it was wrong on some deep level. And I never could quite articulate why. I didn't think it was good, but I always had this sense. And it's funny that as a kid, you recognize these things where adults around you don't necessarily always do. And I, I've i never really thought about exactly why the pan-Indian way of life is bothersome to me until I started looking at it from a linguistic point of view and the number of languages that are dying out because people are neglecting their own specific language heritages. And just yeah. wondered how you see those issues playing out. Well, I was the same way. I was like, you know, I seen on the upper river of the upper tribes, they do powwow. And it totally blew my mind when I heard them, I uh, seen my first powwow. And I have nothing against powwows or the culture or anything. But what I see is like, so when it comes down to it, it's yes, it's a crutch. When you weren't allowed to practice your own culture and everything was outlawed, people were, were accepting of doing powwows. And so it allowed indigenous people an outlet to be indigenous and feel indigenous while not being mass murdered or slaughtered. Yes, I understand that as a stepping stone, but we I believe we have to treat that as it is and return back to our traditional ways. And one of the ways where I thought, you know, which really just blew my mind is when I was able to go to the East Coast and visit with the Mashpee people up that way. And it totally changed my mind of like, open my eyes to what indigenous is. And, you know, their powwow culture is, it's, they, yes, they use the powwow culture, but what they did is they, they use elements of their values of world renewal and they put it in and they changed it and they altered it 
so they can teach their kids, yes, we're doing this, but the reason why we're doing this is because it was illegal to be indigenous, and this part of this represents, you know, certain ceremonies that we used to do. And it's okay to go to power. It's okay to do these things. Yes, if you feel in your heart to do that, go to these things, support these indigenous people, but just realize it's, that's what it is. It's an opportunity for you to support people who are struggling. And unless it's their own culture, unless that's what their people, their people are, we need to show them that respect. We need to show them that support, the people that originally developed these um, ceremonies and make sure that they are doing it properly and I have no power to say somebody stop doing something, but all I can see is I can see where people use powwow as a medicine to help their people heal. But I think it's also time to move forward and reach back to the ground and draw back from our ancestors where we're from and acknowledge these things. And that's not just for indigenous people. That's from indigenous. That's for people all around the world. If you have roots, acknowledge those roots. If you have roots in genocide, and if you have roots in destruction, don't hide from those. Don't be ashamed of those roots. Acknowledge those roots. Do something about it. Make yourself feel better because the more you bottle up all that oppression and try to hide it, the more it's just going to eat yourself alive and then you won't have the opportunity to share your own personal blessings with the world. So when it comes to mental health, I think the best thing we can do is be honest with ourselves and not hold ourselves to the American standard. And what do you mean when you say American standard in this context? The American standard is different for everybody. Everybody has this idea. I'm completely certain you have an idea of what it, what your ideal American lifestyle would look like. What my I have an idea of what my ideal American lifestyle would look like. What do we want as Americans? Because we have to remember, we are all Americans. If you're understanding what I'm saying or if you, you know English, so that means you've been colonized but you haven't been colonized to the point of no return because everybody has the option and ability to go back and research about themselves and their history. And if these connections are lost, learn why they're lost and who is responsible for that. And that is a part of your culture and your history that you need to learn. And that's, that's, that's the beauty of it is there's so much power in the past and there's so much um, opportunities in the past that oftentimes we over there overlooked and, we don't realize how important they were, these lessons that we learned until it's too late. So when I say the American standard, it's different. Just like the restorative revolution is different for everybody. It's within you because you're an individual and you have power and authority over yourself. And um, yeah, so that's just kind of unique to every individual person. But this American standard that's pushed on everybody is um, largely becoming not so unique. Everybody wants starting to want the same thing. You know, and well, that's the materialism that spawned by capitalism is literally tearing apart the fabric of our society in the name of money and the name of greed. And corporations are would rather not take the ingredients out of their product that's making you sick. Instead, they'd rather sell you the cure to the sick to the problem that's making. Now, a lot of people are making themselves sick. I'm making myself sick by eating this food. You know what I mean? And that's what we have to acknowledge too. And that's why we have to be truly honest with ourselves and say, can I not afford to get these groceries or am I investing, you know, my money and my my time into things that aren't allowing me access to these things? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's rewiring who you are, you know, because Americanism 
it's powerful and you're taught to depend on a system and lean into the government for health, lean into the government for funding, lean into the government for housing. We're taught these things. But then as you get older, you realize the government's leaning on the people to you yeah. know, support all this programming. And so it's like, you know, what are you going to do? Well, you take care of yourself. You take care of your family. And no matter what you're doing, no matter what problems you have in your life, or even if you don't even get along with your family, it's important that you take care of yourself and the people you love, because no matter what, you got to love someone, something, somewhere. And uh, it's just human nature and take care of yourself and take care of those things and your life will be better. Oh, that's such a wonderful way to put it. I've often thought about this concept of Americanism, but I've never put it in quite those words. And I, I thank you for articulating it so clearly. That combination of capitalism along with the materialistic society is absolutely right on. And okay, before we move on, are you comfortable if I ask you something about the capital attack? Yeah, totally. Because uh, the people who were saying this is not America really upset me because this is totally what America is. The idea of capturing something as an outside force. I spoke with a friend of mine who is uh, both Black and Indigenous, and she was like, well, to me, this just feels like the settlers at Jamestown all over again, seizing power from other people and violently trying to overthrow things. But I, I didn't know if you had a different perspective on it. Mm, I wasn't surprised. Okay. I, mean, I wasn't shocked when I seen it. I wasn't like, oh, no, like, oh, no, what are we going to do? Or like, it didn't like phase me. I still was like, you're still eating on my popcorn watching TV. But really shocked me was when, yeah, when people started saying, this is not America, this is not who we are. And that is like, quit lying, quit lying to yourself. Quit lying, trying to lie to me. Go push that you know, BS somewhere else. Because obviously, if somebody says that, this, they are not honest with themselves. Or, and that's what it is. And nobody wants to admit that they're not honest with themselves. And that's something that I'm struggling with. I have to find my own honesty and be able to have that power and even to say that. And it's something that I've just recently had the ability to, to say and do since COVID times. I've, you know, I travel a lot for work and I'm always working on other people's problems and so i see a lot of what america has to offer when it comes to challenges and obstacles for people um with indigenous roots and when i seen on the capitol like i said it didn't surprise me it actually um it's just upsetting that so many people are divided into red and blue it's like the biggest gang in america you know i've heard that before and i completely agree it's like people are you know colorblinded by the fact that it's 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 politics and it's so crazy because we love as human beings our social structure is based around this um elite leadership and opportunities so it's this it's this like perfect drama for the people well meanwhile we're all focused on this take a look at what's actually going on in our world you know what mm -hmm. i mean take what's going on in your community all these poor policies that are affecting our people on a daily basis and but yeah all of a sudden millions of dollars are being invested into these protesters that's what they want they want this attention they want this media they want this outrage and a lot of people are just giving it to them you know what i mean we, we created this monster we allowed this to happen why because we were so focused on people of color being terrorists when we were told that people of color were the terrorists you know it doesn't mean that we have this picture 
in our head of like what America is and who we are as Americans. And that's why I say you've got to be brutally honest with, with yourself. And that's truly what America is, is when you take who you are as an individual and you build upon yourself to the point where you start creating opportunities and you start creating opportunities for other people. And that's what I love about America. And that's my America because I am an American. I'm fucking, I mean, I'm proud to be an American. Now I love that. And a lot of these people, they, you know, they're crying around about it. But in my field of work, I got friends that are dead right now. I got shot up because of their doing activism right now. I got friends and you just see these people in the build of these people and they're doing the same thing and you're building with these people. And then all of a sudden to read that they're all shot up or they got killed in front of their families or, you know, they're gone missing or found in a ditch and all these things. It's like the only reason why I'm not like that. The only reason why a lot of my people are like that is because we're American and that can't happen here. Where in other places in the world, the corporation is king and they're allowed to just to walk up in your house and kill you. And, you know, to an extent it's like that in America, but not to where it's like in other places. So I'm happy for the protections that I have as an American to change the system in which I'm a part of. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. It's like, I don't agree with those people, but I also don't agree with uh, a lot of things that liberals have to say. I don't agree with a lot of things that Republicans have to say. You know, all I know is that I believe, you know, what I believe in. And I believe in everybody should have the right to build a healthy, healthy opportunity for themselves. And you can call yourself whatever you want. As long as you're building and helping us build and build up yourself, that's your, that's, that's your right. I think a lot of people have a hard time with the fact that there is no right side to be on right now. That there is no party that seems to really be a moral compass right now in terms of what is good. Not that there ever has been, not that there ever will be most likely. But I think people lied to themselves for a long time that there was, that they were on the side that was good and just and right. When you are still faced with the fact that you live in a country that has been poisoned by the people who claim to be in charge. It's kind of a terrifying thought. Well, you think about it, it's not that it's not like President Trump, like, yeah, the guy is an asshole. He's not the brightest guy, but he doesn't all of a sudden turn our world upside down. No, I, yeah. I'm not saying he's the one who did it. I'm saying oh, yeah. that literally everyone collectively among the white people who are not indigenous to this country, who are responsible for poisoning the land. Well, there's, you know, and that is, it's not just white people either. There's some indigenous people that are doing, you know, bad shit too. And that's what it comes down to is like, we have to stop with telling, you know, one thing that bothers me is like a lot of people who had like Republican, you know, families or were raised Republican. And they say, I don't want nothing to do with that. So I'm going to be completely, you know, liberal and say, you know, they want to save people all the time and get in politics and bring politics into things. It's like, I don't think there's, there's room in our community for that. There's no room in our community. We, I live in rural Northern California. People are trying to get by it. They don't from before the inauguration and after the inauguration, a lot of people didn't feel the differences. A lot of people still have leaky roofs. A lot of people still have shitty jobs. A lot of people are still doing what they can to get by. And um, it doesn't really affect them as much. But you get these people in positions of power and they want to become politics. They'll do everything they can to get um, a pat on the head by the right person. And so it affects our way of life when local politics start getting wrapped up into, you know, 
what the American dream of, 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 a, of a politician. I believe that what we have to do is we have to start getting people running for local offices in our own communities that represent the communities there. There's a stigma that you have to be old to run for politics. Not true. There's a stigma that you have to be established to run for politics. It's not true. There's a stigma around being a person of color and running for politics thinking it's going to be harder for you. It's not true. Especially now where we have so many people of color that are registered voters. And we even must say people of color, I hate using that term too, because it's just more divide amongst our people. But in reality, if you look at America, if you look truly about who America is, and you'll see that there's a lot more people that are coming from different parts of the world to construct what the future of our nation looks like right now. And that's a beautiful thing because yes. it's something that, that, that President Trump tried to stop. It wasn't successful with the wall and definitely wasn't successful with his reelection. That didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I can talk for days, too. So oh, no, no, no. I love it. I love it. I don't want you to be quiet at all. Um, I, uh, You talked about your objection to the term people of color. And one of the things that has been difficult for me as a white person to navigate lately is trying to come up with like a term like BIPOC, because some people object to BIPOC, some people object to person of color, some people object to anything that's non-specific language for exactly what they are. It's very, very difficult to kind of navigate that space. But then at the same time, you see the people who are, you see white liberals who are absolutely positive that they have the answers and that know what the experience of people of color or BIPOCs or very specific groups, they think they know the experience just because they read a book or had a conversation and then they're off to the races actually muting people of color mm -hmm. and talking over them wherever possible. And I just wondered if that was something you've seen too. Yeah, I think, and you know, it hasn't really been a, um, it's, I don't know, it's never really been a problem for me. I guess, I guess for me, it's more about, you know, I acknowledge people for who they are. Like the, once we stop making general statements about everybody, once we stop trying to categorize everybody, once we stop trying, you know, there's such this big hype into people's, you know, what they call themselves or, you know, everything. And it's, I know it's based around self-respect, but for me, it's when I'm saying, when I'm talking to somebody, I'm talking to somebody, it's a human being, you know what I mean? And we stop breaking up people into human beings because it's not just people of color. There's not one thing on this world that is affecting just people of color. Mm -hmm. you know I mean? Nothing in this world that is just affecting people of color. And the idea that something is just affecting, affecting people of color is also, is also a, a trait uh, or a, you know, a side effect of growing up within a generation where white supremacy was king. You know what I mean? And to where a generation of people who understand that that's not right and they have this shame and they don't want to talk about it. And so they want to be appropriate. But even in trying to be appropriate, a lot of people fumble on it and they wind up finding themselves in a worse situation than in which they started yeah. because they're trying to dance around the question and they're trying to dance around their own traumas and they're trying to dance around their own history and not expose themselves for who they truly are. And that's where the problem is, is when you stop generalizing people, 
we need to stop saying blanket statements and having blanket excuses and having blanket solutions and start really, you know, dispersing power locally and having opportunities dispersed amongst the community that and 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 give these people in the community the opportunity to make decisions that's going to affect their lives because right now i don't see that's happening and it's one of the biggest problems in america is this corruption of small government by corporations and mm-hmm. this politics is basically just corporate entity at this point in america it's something that i don't really like i don't see myself getting involved in much but in reality, the way as I become older, I realize that, yes, these decisions are affecting our people on a daily basis, that there is policy out there that is affecting our decisions, that are affecting indigenous people. And when I say indigenous, that's anybody. That could be anywhere from around the world. You are indigenous from somewhere. But, you know, do you acknowledge those roots? Do you do you see yourself as from that place or and an American? And that's what it is, is I had to force myself to think of myself as a Yurok tribal member and an American as two separate things. When in reality, I'm a Yurok American, and spreading that that acknowledgement is 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 powerful. And that's me personally. I believe once we give people the power to make their own decisions, and once we give people the opportunity to utilize healthy spaces, then we're going to see a drastic change in the way our societies are dealing with our problems, from policing to healthcare to uh, social economic depression and micronutrients people are deprived of micronutrients we're going to see so much change within this next 10 years because there's so many people who um not only feel like the only solution is going to school but coming back to where they're from and acknowledging their roots and i think it's going to be it's going to be a good five years (laughs) i really hope you're right about that i really really do i had another question for you about what you do is the director of the Yurok Ancestral Guard. Yeah. What is your role in terms of that? And how do you feel that it fits into all of these aspirations that you have for the country? I taught myself how to write grants. I didn't teach myself. My, not my co he's like my brother, Nathaniel Pennington, and all my mentors. I wrote my first grant in like high school, I want to say. And it was for a language grant. I had no idea what was going on. And I've always wanted to be a writer. I want to write movies. I want to write films. And that was something I wanted to do when I was younger. But I wanted to write about our life and what we're doing. And then when I heard about grant writing, I said, what's that? And I looked into that. And it is. It's telling our story. It's sharing what we're going through right now. And it's putting it out there in the world for people who are feeling the same way. And they see they have mutual understanding. They want to create change. And it's giving me the opportunity to connect with these people. And that's the beauty of it is like this writing process has gifted me so much where right now as the director of the ancestral guard my main job is to provide healthy opportunities and i say it a lot and you'll hear me say it over and over again because you know there is no one blanket solution that's going to heal a community but there is an action that you can take to make sure that you have all the odds in your favor and that's develop healthy opportunities so that's my job right now i grant writer I write fine grants and um, I have a team. We have a finance lady that helps write budgets. And I just basically facilitate services and build connections within my community, the existing resources. And I consult with a bunch of tribes in Northern California to kind of utilize these existing resources because there's so much money in our communities that's not getting utilized properly. And that's the biggest thing. 
you can have people write grants until their fingers fall off. But if they're not, you know, utilizing those funds appropriately and they're just trying to fill out grant reports and not help the people, then they're just going to fill out grant reports for their whole career. And the people will never really get appropriate help. But when you start helping the people and all of a sudden people come to you with opportunities, it's a whole different ballgame. So luckily we've stepped up from being, you know, some res kids that are just fishing and feeding elders to becoming a powerhouse of an organizing infrastructure in Northern California. When people told us that we would never become a nonprofit. And then I remember we had a annual budget of $5,000 and, you know, I can happily say for 2021, we're gearing up to hopefully we got about, we got a little bit of fundraising to do, but we're gearing up to be a hundred thousand dollar organization. And that's creating jobs and resources and gardens directly into our communities. And there's no money going outside of our communities and we're investing. And the reason why we've been able to obtain this type of growth is because we're not setting up opportunities to get more grants. We're setting up opportunities for our people to take care of themselves. And that's something that can be adapted throughout the world, no matter who you are. That's wonderful. And that's really terrific growth. I'm so happy for you and the organization and the community. I wondered if you could tell me, because when I first called you about coming on this podcast, there was the most beautiful sound in the background of these seagulls and the, <laughs> and the water lapping gently. And it, it was like this most gorgeous sonic landscape in the background. And I actually wanted to ask you, is it possible that you would be willing to take a recording on your phone for us? For $5. For five dollars, all right. You got a deal. You got I'm a just, deal. I'm just playing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> We're checking crap bots, you know. And that's the thing is like that's creating healthy opportunities. You know, that's in the f- workforce. I used to love. I used to always just run straight to my desk for Zoom meetings, but I'm, but now I'm like, if I'm at my desk, you're lucky. Because we're out in the field and we're doing these things. And if you're, if I'm out there doing it, I'm going to bring you with me. And that's the kind of mentality that, that, that we have now. So, yeah, we were crabbing. And that's I think that's is. fantastic. Yeah, I'll get that sound for you. Awesome. Awesome. No, because I, I really think that's a wonderful way to do it. Because you're actually bringing people into your community when you do those things. And mm-hmm. getting them involved in what your daily life is like which is, to be very honest, more important and more interesting than most other people's daily lives. Well, thanks. Thanks for that opinion. That, but, that's yeah, my I'm, opinion. But <laughs> Yeah, I'm just pretty much like one little piece of a wheel that's turning in this machine that is the restorative revolution. You know, there's so much behind me, like there's so many people like behind Sammy Jinsaw that make me, you know, even able to be on this meeting today or make sure I'm getting to my meetings or doing all these things. And, you know, because I'm a totally flawed human being, I got stuff that I need to work on. I'm stretched in so many different directions, you know, it's, yeah. I'm going to have opportunities to where I can sit down and talk with somebody and have these type of conversations. But I want to thank you so very much for your time and so very much for coming on the podcast and I would love it if you could tell me and our listeners how they can support your initiatives. Yeah. One thing is the first thing you can do is you can follow us on Instagram. It's underscore ancestral underscore guard. And then another piece is I'll show you. We have this, um, this little 
business we do. It's called Fishbone Trade Company that my brother runs. And basically, it's all locally harvested uh, materials from abalone to the pine nuts they pick them to the shells and the braiding of the grass. You know, there's all these materials that go into it. And a lot and a law, large part of, you know, those proceeds go back into indigenous youth, and indigenous people. So that's something if you would like something back, that's the easiest way. You know, we can hook you up with some bracelets. There's amazing jewelry. Another thing you can do is just reach out. And you have had many questions because one thing that I like to do is I like to open source my programming and help other people who have like goals. Or if you just want to see what we're doing, just stay connected and go to our website and you can donate at naturerightscouncil.com or you can Google Ancestral Guard and get information on us pretty easily. Really this has been a wonderful, wonderful time. And you've been so generous with all your answers. And Yeah, you're, yeah, thank you. It's the first Zoom meeting I've been on in a couple of weeks. So you got so you got all that built up, uh, <laughs> ready to go. <laughs> I really appreciate it. All right. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are in your car or your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are in now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahoac people. I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that also reside in Virginia and have made innumerable contributions to our region. I am grateful to work on this land. I acknowledge these facts in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, our present, and our future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Coming up soon, we will be making our rounds of the festival circuit with coverage of Sundance and guests from the International Film Festival of Rotterdam, before I go, please take 30 seconds right now to leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Podchaser. Doesn't have to be anything fancy. Just a simple RTO rocks my socks is good enough. And then connect with us through our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch.